Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbull. And I am your other host, Susan Fox. And with us is Karen Keane, who is the mastermind behind StoryForge Productions. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Jean and Susan. <laughs> so we've just been uh, cramming, honestly, um, listening to your your dulcet tones, reading us the creation myths of the ancient Norse. Ah. We, uh, you sent us some recommendations, um, and if you go to storyforgeproductions.com, you can download some of these samples to listen to for yourself. And we... We, you sent us some, and uh, one of my favorites, like straight off the bat, was the fact that uh, uh, you took on the Norse mythology, and I had not heard mm. some of these stories. I don't. Susan is much more familiar with these than I am. Yeah, they, they did a good job. Well, thank you. But anybody you know who's been reading Thor comics or watching those movies or even American Gods lately needs to be mm-hmm. listening to this and get get the straight poop. <laughs> well, and that's why I wanted to do these is because the uh, with the big excitement around the Marvel Thor films, uh, Norse mythology has always been something that I've deeply loved. I was like, you know, I bet people would want to know the real stories behind this. And so I jumped in on it. And uh, so far, it's been working out nicely. There's some stories that they're they're never going to touch. Like Thor, oh, and how Thor got his hammer back. <laughs> yeah, let's see no. them do that one. I'm not familiar with that. Basically, he dressed up as a as a bride for, oh, for the yes. Frost Giants. Oh, yes. The, he was <laughs> going to be a Loki the tries bride to marry a, him off. Yeah. Right. And uh, it was Loki's idea. What the hell? It worked. Most <laughs> terrible ideas usually come from Loki. Let's just be honest. It, yep. it happened to work, but oh, boy. Yeah. yeah. But uh, uh, every all of our modern storytelling has these foundations, uh, you know, in, in the background underneath. Uh, and sometimes you have to dig quite a ways back to find them. And... Um, uh, so the Norse mythology is at the root of so much of what we have. I mean, even uh, the names of our the days, days of, of our the week. days yeah. of the week come from that. Exactly. So, um, which came first, Storyforge Productions or these uh, recordings about uh, Norse mythology? 
Well, it was definitely StoryForge uh, that came first. My business partner, Rachel, she and I uh, were sitting down in a room one day trying to figure out what we could do with the idea of a production company because she and I both knew we wanted to start one. We'd been working for a few other production companies before that, um, but one after the other ended up not working out either due to failed funding or overly ambitious projects. And we were looking at that and figured, you know what? We can do this. Like we can take the resources that are sitting in front of us and not overreach and still make really good projects. Um, it's that whole necessity being the mother of invention. If you force yourself to work mm -hmm. with a little bit less, you sometimes come up with something better. And we, uh, realized that we had my passion for Norse mythology and we could definitely get a hold of a microphone. <laughs> so we started with the Norse myths. We had a composer who was willing to work with us as well. Um, and that's something I really love about the project is that every story that we tell has its own score. And our composer actually went and researched as much as he possibly could what Viking music would have sounded like back then to try to capture some of that aesthetic, just even in the music. Is it okay if we, um, if we play one of these, I like the, yeah. the story of how Odin lost his eye. Oh, that's one of my favorites. Yes. Let's. How Odin's Eye Was Lost Odin Allfather was troubled deeply. The whisperings of Yggdrasil had told him the prophecies of the end, of Ragnarok. He had listened and knew of how Surtur the Black would join the giants in their war against the gods, how he would arise out of the flames of Muspel and drown the earth in fire. Odin's wisdom told him that he could not prevent this end. But he hoped that perhaps with wisdom, something could be saved of the gods and of men. So disguised as a graying old man, Odin traveled the Bifrost to Midgard and began to search for the well of Mimir, rumored to hold great wisdom for any who drank of its waters. The well lay beneath the root of Yggdrasil that grew out of Jotunheim. It was kept by Mimir, the man who drank its wisdom each morning, and who kept watch over the Yalar horn that Heimdallar, the White Watcher, would blow on the day of Ragnarok. Many days and many nights did Odin travel, meeting man and giants alike. He learned the location of the well, and also the great price of its waters, for Mimir never asked less than the right eye of any who would drink. After many more days of travel, he came to the edge of the well, deep, in Jotunheim. Hail Mimir, drinker of the mead of wisdom, Odin cried. Hail Odin, ruler of the Aesir, welcome and come. I would have a draught from the well, and, great Allfather, will you pay the price? I shall. And so Mimir took up the horn Gyala and filled it with good water from the well and gave the horn to Odin to drink. Odin saw the pain and loss before him. He steeled his mind and his body, took the horn to his lips, 
and drank. As the water entered him, his eyes were opened, and he saw. He saw the great and terrible sufferings that must befall both men and gods. Yet also, he saw their reasons and causes, and why they must be. He drank again, and saw the ways that gods and men might, in great noble courage, fight and defeat the evils that would surely arise, though at great cost. For he saw also his death, and the death of the Aesir that lived in Asgard by his side. How mighty Thor would succumb to the venom of the great serpent, and how Loki would come against Heimdall and each be the other's slayer. He saw his own death at the jaws of Fenrir, and many more deaths and failings that would come of Ragnarok. After he saw these things, Odin put his hand to his face and plucked out his right eye. The pain was great and searing, but he made no sound nor showed his great suffering. Mimir took the eye and threw it into the well, where it sunk deep and glistened like glass, a sign to any who might pass of the price Odin Allfather paid for his wisdom. And Odin returned to Asgard and sat upon his throne and considered the things he had seen. That was uh, that was neat. I had no idea. I mean, uh, uh, obviously, you know, there had to be this big backstory as to how he lost it, but I didn't know he lost it because he had sought wisdom. That that was, mm. and so much of Norse mythology is all is is uh, this r- un- incomprehensible, remarkable thing happened, and it, and uh, I mean, it all glues together, but. There isn't a whole lot of touchstone with uh, the day-to-day lives. Uh, that comes later in the sagas. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, like and- hiding from your enemies in a vat of of cheese, basically. <laughs> yeah, some of the earlier stories tend to be a bit more epic as you set up, particularly the character of Odin, since he's the... T- basically the major god of the Norse. He's the god of war, which would, of course, be a huge deal for the Vikings, Mm -hmm. since their whole lifestyle revolves around battle and combat. Uh, And then he's the god of wisdom, which any good general needs if he's going to be successful in his raids and in his ability to protect his country. So Odin is a big deal. And as you start to get into characters like Loki and Thor and Freyr and Fenrir's, uh, the major, the big wolf, mm-hmm. things start to get a little bit more ridiculous. <laughs> and, uh, and it's foreshadowed. He's, um, all, all of this stuff sort of knits together. He has foreseen the fall of Asgard and mm-hmm. the death of Thor and uh, mm-hmm. uh, and of Loki mm-hmm. and uh, how every everything comes unraveled and still he fights. Mm-hmm. 
It's the thing that I love about Norse mythology is there's this ominous cloud sitting over every story that's being told of Ragnarok is coming. Mm -hmm. And it's this impending doom that you cannot escape. But not today, you know, <laughs> I can exactly. put it for one more day. Right. They have one more day. And if you get into the story of Ragnarok itself, you find out, too, that there is not without hope even in that story. The gods are going to die, like Odin and Loki and Thor. They all die, but they aren't all wiped out. Like, Thor's sons survive, and so does Baldur, who's this amazingly beautiful god of poetry. And they restart civilization, and humankind survives, and life is actually better on the other side of it, which I find to be just this really beautiful picture of yeah, everything we know is coming to an end, but there's hope in life even still on the other side of that, which I think is just a beautiful story to tell and then to even believe about our world. Your interest in storytelling goes beyond the simple theatrical presentations. Um, tell us about the community that you're trying to build with uh, StoryForge. Well, with StoryForge, a lot of the impetuous behind it was to create a community of storytellers who could be encouraged and inspired by each other to tell better stories themselves. Um, I wholeheartedly believe that everyone has a story to tell. And in fact, humankind communicates well through stories. Like if I tell you my story, Jean, you'll understand me a bit better. And if I hear yours, I'll understand you. And we have a connection there. We have a, a relationship that can build. And by helping other people to learn to tell their stories well, not only can the world become a little bit better, but also it's just so much fun. And not only we work, of course, with a lot of audio storytellers. So there's a number of musicians and voice actors and such who we work with. Um, but in addition to that, we lo I love reaching out to looking at the multimedia way in which storytelling happens with uh, there's with comics and with writers and with photographers and musicians, like all of them can tell stories through their art. And one thing that we do try to do is bring people together into a, into a room and then see kind of what, what stories and projects come out of that. And even as we go to conventions and on our website, you'll see our main goal is to equip people to be able to tell stories better. We talk about story structure. We talk about just the nitty gritty of, having to make money off of your art sometimes. Um, and it tends, people are, are responding really well. Like the community around StoryForge is something that I look forward to continuing to invest in every day. It's, it's so hard writing in a vacuum uh, and not being, so true. you can't, you can't do your best work if you're doing, doing it all by yourself. And that's the thing that I think creatives uh, in every discipline uh, must discover on their own. You do not become a great painter by sequestering yourself and painting by yourself, nor do you become a great writer by doing the same thing. You must be in a community of other people doing the same kind of work that you're doing so that you can see your work through their eyes. Absolutely. And learn from them and let them mm -hmm. teach, teach you where you're weak and, and get better at your strengths by being able to help other people. Oh, yes. And they can, it, what you just said, uh, uh, 
they can help you in areas where you're weak. And uh, the hardest thing I think for an artist is to is to challenge those those aspects of their skill or craft in which they do mm. poorly. Uh, and you just, without outside help, you just grind on that and you get nowhere. So I think that's Absolutely. why, I think that's why, uh, uh, the story forge community is so important. Um, so at what point did it go from a production company to let's, let's see if we can float all boats? Well, what we decided to do at the very beginning was we came up with a somewhat unusual business plan, uh, which we call the octopus style of doing business. And our idea was to come up with as many arms of our production company as possible, find out which arms would be able to support weight, cut off all the arms that didn't, and then just strengthen the ones that stuck around. Um, so at the very beginning, it it actually works out pretty well. It's a little brutal for the arms that didn't work out, but uh you know. So mm-hmm. we had uh we started off with working, we did comics, we did article writing, we had audio dramas, we did short we were working with short films, um we released some uh just novel-like stories. And as we moved forward, we spent the first two years pretty much just saying yes to every project that anybody approached us with. Um, it was exhausting, but it was really good. And by the end of those two years, we had a lot of content that we had made. Um, and we were also very intensely testing out our different audiences and seeing what people liked and what they didn't. And at the end of those two years, we found out that the uh, things that people were responding to the most were audio dramas, particularly. Isn't that interesting? I, I mean, of the, yeah. rise, the rise of the podcast, people are used to them now. That's exactly it. And there's a lot of books on tape, but there's not a lot of radio dramas proper, as I'm sure you all are familiar with. Mm-hmm. There's just kind of a, a dearth of it. Yeah, it's there is a great deal of uh, there's a there's a lot of talking heads material out there, you know, people sitting that around is. a microphone and and talking about what they thought about what somebody else made, but not mm-hmm. a whole lot of of uh, productions where people actually make something new themselves. Exactly, and people were really responding to that. Uh, we found that the Welcome to Night Vale fans, in particular, yes. oh, really yes. enjoyed oh, yes. what we were doing, uh, and. After listening to some of this stuff, I can see why. Uh, we sampled um, Dracula? the Dracula files. Yeah. Oh, boy, that's... It's sort of a modern retelling, isn't it? With it is. Some modern yeah. technology that, you know, doesn't, doesn't work much better than the old original technology. <laughs> exactly. At the end of the day, Dracula is still Dracula. And even if you have a cell phone, it's hard to beat a vampire. Right. <laughs> the the daily diary approach uh it it gets around needing to have it gets around the crutch of needing a uh, a narrator mm-hmm. you know and he's and his own narrator he's his own narrator and yes. uh, uh this is this is one of the this is one of the hurdles that we found ourselves faced with with uh with our own production as well mm. which is that uh, if you use a narrator, I mean, you can. Uh, there are audio stories 
you know, audio presentations, if you will, that make good use of them. But it can also be a crutch because you end yourself, you find yourself in exposition land. Far, exactly. Far too much of the time, exposition has a, a tendency to bring action to a screeching halt, which is a problem if uh, the rest of the internet is a mouse click away. Exactly. And people don't want to sit through and listen to it so much. I, uh, my background's actually in film and in that industry, we have a rule, which is the story should stand on its own without the narrator. Uh huh. And you should only add the narration to enhance what's already there. Right. Yeah, yes, we, yes. we, we have this discussion at home a lot. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no narrators. Yeah. Get rid of that. Yes. Uh, and, and you have to, you have to jump through some hoops. You know, to make that happen, because your exposition then must come entirely from the dialogue. Mm -hmm. uh, and it can't seem forced. Don't tell me. Show me. Yeah, exactly. And then, exactly. but then show me, but blindfold me. <laughs> Which is difficult. It's the, it, we definitely have been running into that struggle with mm -hmm. audio and realizing it. On a writing level, that's really where that needs to be shake, to shake out. We got a little bit lucky with Dracula because our source material was actually written in that style. So when Bram Stoker wrote Dracula, the whole novel is written as a collection of letters and journal entries and telegrams and such. Mm -hmm. So when we adapted it to take place in a modern era, we were able to lift I mean, essentially the found footage of that time and turn it into a found audio format where we could translate it over to audio messages and phone calls and voicemails and radio spots and such. Oh, it's like the Blair Witch Project, except with headphones. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Neat. Okay, that's cool. I, 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 I'm, I'm just getting really enjoying this conversation just from the standpoint of being a writer struggling with this stuff myself so so, so either you write it yourself or you find something like dracula that's safely in the pu public domain well, exactly <laughs> and, well and uh and even even there uh if you are coming trying to come up with something original you can see what other writers did to solve the same problem. You don't necessarily have to parrot what they wrote, but you can definitely use them as inspiration uh, for solving the same sorts of of, of problems. You know, one of the early uh, dramatizations uh, troops has um, was the alien voices, which was mostly, uh, it was a lot of Star Trek people, really, but they, <laughs> they were going for like H.G. Wells and other stuff that they didn't have to pay for. Mm-hmm. I would have loved to see some some later work, but uh, I'm not sure they're still recording. Just too bad because, like, the 1920s stuff is coming out now. Yeah. Out from under, and uh, there's going to be some interesting material coming out. 1920s? There's going to be fantastic material once that rolls out. Yeah. I, I'm, in the 30s. Uh, 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 yeah, I'm lost here. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm coming into public domain in, in the U.S. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. okay. Uh, um, it's a time limit. Right. It's like 72 years or some outrageous thing. Yeah. And uh, but, and know, that's if the families haven't renewed the copyrights, which sometimes happens. I mean, the uh, uh, stuff that's still in publication like Superman, I don't think we're going to see anytime soon. But there was a lot of stuff around well, the same time that will be uh, useful. Well, the adventures of Superman, though, from the 40s is all... Those, yeah, those, the, nobody we, renewed those recordings, and that's a different 
that's that's a copyright. Right, right. And and, mm-hmm. and uh, so we we get to play those. <laughs> one a day, every day. A thousand and oh, how many? One thousand one hundred and fifty-two episodes of the original Adventures of Superman. And then just rolls over and starts over. Yeah, and when we get to the end, we play. We start the loop over again, and it's all new. It's it, really neat. Yeah, it gives you uh, it gives you an opportunity to see what. I mean, you can listen to this stuff, and and uh, even there, you can you can hear how problems were solved just listening to the old radio shows. Mm. And uh, well, the old radio shows did such fantastic work with their use of their medium. They just seemed to lean into the fact that there was a very limited amount of information that you can convey through audio and just went crazy with it. Like the Foley studios that they had Mm -hmm. during even live radio performances were mind blowing what they were pulling off just in that small little space. Yeah. It's uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. There's a, um, here in California in Beverly Hills, there's a place called the, uh, uh, the Paley center for, for broadcast, for broadcast. It was originally the Museum of Television and Radio, but I think that they've expanded it to broadcasting in general to include uh, Internet age. But they have a they have a standing. Yeah, they have a standing Foley stage, you know, so and and people can come in and do their own. uh, Try it. (laughs) Yeah, they can. People can try it and do their own radio shows live in front of audiences. But if you think it's so easy, do it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So do you spend a lot of time? How, the, the well, they clearly did a lot of good work on the Foley, especially I was I was observing that in the Dracula production. They're going. Oh, thank you. That, that, that sounded like a cart with you know creaking wheels and horses and. Yep. Is that all? Is that pulled from libraries when you do it, or is it, do you actually do Foley work? It's a combination of both. So we did on set fully. Actually, I should probably explain to you how we even made this because it was a little unusual. Um, so with most audio productions, generally it's done in a sound stage. But since we were with Dracula trying to capture that found footage, found audio feel, we actually recorded everything live. Um, so we set up a sta- uh, room just like you would as a film set. But instead of cameras, there were just microphones set up everywhere. And then we would stage each scene in its entirety like a theater performance and run us and run the actors through the scene over and over again. And they did most of the sound effects practically on stage. Goodness. Which was a lot of fun. The actors loved it, um, particularly because since there weren't any cameras to waste time moving around, their performances were what it was all about. So we, I guess the director really got to collaborate with the individual actors to make sure that we got their performances where we wanted them. And they had a lot of fun, too, getting to run around and make their own sound effects. And oftentimes they're carrying the microphones from place to place. And it was very immersive and a lot of fun. And then after that, we did uh, another whole round of Foley that we did on our own. Um, And then for any small things that we couldn't do, such as wolves, um, we couldn't, you know, go and actually record snarling wolves because those are somewhat dangerous and it's frowned upon to bait animals into snarling at you. (laughs) Uh So we didn't do that. Uh, We did use sound libraries for some of those. But for the most part, every sound effect you hear was either done practically 
on look on set with the cam with the um, microphones there, um, or um, I did the fully myself. I'd like to play um, another cut uh, this time from the um, from the Dracula files. Uh, this is the scene where um, our hero uh, or our victim <laughs> is uh, <laughs> or Jonathan. Yes, Jonathan is is standing in the middle of nowhere, waiting for a carriage to arrive to take him to Castle Dracula. And we're back. And uh, poor Jonathan, he's freezing his knees out there, isn't he? Yeah. He is. It and was the, actually incredibly hot the day we recorded it. So Steven Novick, <laughs> our actor, was a very good actor because he's standing there wiping sweat. I'm freezing, guys. I'm sure of it. <laughs> it's like the story of of uh, write, them writing uh, the you know Christmas songs in the you know, the white Christmas in the heat of summer just to the freaking palm cool. trees and the, yeah and they're <laughs> dying because it's 110. But, uh, th- exactly. But uh, boy, you really felt it. I mean, you uh, he, you hear this carriage roll up, and and after he's he's been talking about how. Uh, you know how beautiful it is in in the middle of the forest, basically, or up up on the hills, and he can see the castle from here. And uh, and I'm up. I've got that right because I just heard it a couple of minutes ago. You got the idea. Yeah, but uh, uh, but the scene is set and the atmosphere is set, and then this guy rolls up in this carriage, and he's got this. You know, it's like instead of saying hi. Ooh, How nobody. are you? It's like, get in the carriage and not going all oh, He doesn't want to go there. It's like, yeah, you don't want to get in that thing. <laughs> I just, well, and what you find out later is that the carriageman is actually Dracula in disguise because uh, he's all by himself in that castle. He has, he doesn't have any footmen. He doesn't have any servants. So he's mm-hmm. ostensibly eaten them all. Um, Where did Renfield come from then? I, I... Oh, so Renfield, there is a short story, I believe, that says that Renfield at one time visited Castle Dracula and then went back. In our version, we have Renfield as a uh, person who's homeless from the Tenderloin District, Mm -hmm. because the whole story is actually, when we leave Transylvania, the rest of the story is set in modern day San Mm -hmm. Francisco. Mm. And Dr. Seward is setting up a homeless rehabilitation clinic down there in the Tenderloin. And that's how Renfield is brought in. He uh, was let off of a charge on an insanity plea and ended up in Seward's care. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it, it's the the retelling of the story. I mean, I, I love the fact that the whole thing can be just picked up and transplanted into a new era. I mean, that's one of the marks of a really good story is that it will stand on its own even if you do something like that. Isn't it though? And one of my most enjoy one of the most enjoyable things about working on this project was being able to faithfully adapt Bram Stoker's novel. Like we did completely change the setting, but all the major plot beats are the same, the character development is the same. Uh, we've tried to ve- stay very true to the themes that Stoker himself was working with. And it's just not done very often. Like Stoker's actual story is not often the version of Dracula that we hear. 
But it's still, you know, life, death, love, and loss, and and absolutely beautiful girls wearing diaphanous gowns (laughs) (laughs) by accident, actually. But yes, Mm -hmm. diaphanous. You know, it it just it um, it it summons to mind uh, the Dracula movies from the uh, from the late fifties, and they're all in these long. Flowing, flowing draperies, draperies, you know, exactly. and walking around with their heads tilted. I'm going <laughs> like, to go slip into something diaphanous right now. <laughs> so, so, um, uh, you mentioned story beats. Are you, uh, are you a fan of Blake Snyder's work? Uh, Save the cat. Oh, yes. Actually, I uh, have actually read his book oh, and studied one. it quite a bit. Uh, I do. I like his story beats a lot. I don't use every one of them always. I'm mm-hmm. a firm believer in know the rules so you can break them well. Yes. But I love what he said. And it's so helpful to have his tools to break a story down beat by beat like that. Um, just to even be able to see where it's going. Yeah, it's... It was a real eye opener. I mean, uh, the what he did in terms of breaking down uh, stories by beat like this uh, turned out to be kind of controversial. It uh, did. Uh, um, you talk to older writers, and they they're not having with that sort of thing. Yeah, but all the newer writers, uh, most of the most of the new writers that we talk to uh, have. A, at least have some understanding of story beats mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and try to work out their stories in advance so that they you know they kind of follow this stuff along and it, it's you don't realize uh just how rigid the structure of storytelling really is mm-hmm. or at least certainly can be yeah i mean very you know you have not only a beginning a middle and an end you have a turning point. Like if you, if your script is 120 pages, your turning point where your character reaches rock bottom is around page 60 ish. Mm-hmm. Uh, your inciting incident had better be somewhere before page 10 or you're screwed. Uh, you know, shoot the, the sheriff in the first reel. Right. <laughs> you, you know, there are rules to follow. Uh, um, and a lot of beginning writers and people who don't write. Uh, and mm-hmm. but who want to don't necessarily understand that this is a, all a highly structured art form. It's like it's like ballet with words. Absolutely. I think one of my writing mentors, as I was getting my degree in screenwriting, uh, their most valuable lesson they taught me was that it would be it's okay to not follow the structure. But you have to not follow the structure because you're choosing not to. Otherwise, you're just a sloppy writer who doesn't know what they're doing. Right. Another book that I found really helpful in that quest to understand the rules before breaking them was Christopher Vogler's Writer's Journey, mm. which was based off of Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces. I, I have uh, I had two copies of that book and I gave a copy to a friend who wanted to be a writer when I got my second revision of it. I gave her the first one. Oh, nice. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm I'm a big fan of Christopher Vogler's work, that book in particular. And, uh, and of course of Joseph Campbell's stuff, which I have read cover to cover many times. Yeah, Tom Campbell's work is quite interesting, but yeah, I especially appreciate in Vogler's section, his conversations about how the plot should move. And then also about his character archetypes. I found that particularly helpful. Mm-hmm. 
looking at the shapeshifters and heralds and mentors and all these different types and the way he broke those all down is helpful because then you can rearrange them and smash them together in new and interesting ways. Well, maybe not new, but at least interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's hard but, to do something completely new. Yeah, well, you know, and, and uh, so much of this goes back even to uh, uh, Aristotle's poetics. You Absolutely. Remember, you remember that from film school. Oh, of course. <laughs> they made they made us all read it over and over. <laughs> what is the core of tragedy and comedy? And yes. Uh, and and the most important uh, piece, I think, that you walk away from from reading that is plot comes from character, but character mm-hmm. comes from plot. Yes. And they're circularly dependent. Yes. And. Uh, so do you have occasions where your characters, uh, once they are put in a certain situation, do something other than what you expected them to do? Oh, all the time. I'm a, Primarily, I write my characters first. I'm My strength as a writer is in character writing. Mm-hmm. And so generally, whenever I come up with a new story, or even when I seek to do an adaptation like with Dracula... Uh, I always try to drive, dive into the characters' heads first. In Dracula, we had a five-person writing team, and we were each of us responsible for different for writing different characters. Um, so I ended up writing Mina and Lucy, and I wrote I think maybe a fifteen to twenty-page backstory for them, just to help me understand their characters and where they were coming from, what their wants were, and their drives. And then when they came on screen, they started doing, or not on screen rather, but when they came into the mm-hmm. screenplay, they started just doing very interesting things. And then with my original stories as well, the characters usually have taken over the story after about the second act. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're just sort of, they're, they're like, um, you, this is a similar concept to game development, actually. Mm-hmm. And there's an interesting parallel here, and that is that uh, a character in a game, a non-player character in a game, responds mm-hmm. to its environment depending on what stimuli it receives. Mm-hmm. And it's going to do things in uh, according to whatever its motivations are supposed to be, like mm-hmm. uh, chase you unless there are more than one... Uh, on your side, in which case, run away. You know, make the decision to save your save its skin because it's outmatched. Exactly. Um, uh, or uh, avoid avoid the light because it loves the shadow. Or mm-hmm. find food at all costs and kill anything mm-hmm. in its way to get it. You know, the, these sorts of uh, decisions that this char- the characters have to make. But the thing is that the characters are all born or or instanced within the story and they know this a priori and uh, when you are creating a new story with characters that you've done this kind of deep development with you're essentially doing the same thing you're setting up the reactions and how they think about things and how they perceive the world and then when you put them in those situations off they go and sometimes uh, they'll do something like, uh, something that is perfectly appropriate for them, 
but that does not help you move the plot forward at all. <laughs> right. So then that's when you have to rein it back in and say, okay, I know you want to do that, but that's not going to happen. <laughs> right. And then, and then you have the unfortunate job of shoehorning that character's reactions into whatever plot you need it, need to be served. Yeah, yeah, I had two I characters following. Your plot is flawed in some way, right? And then back it up to figure out what was it that pushed the character off plot and <laughs> fix whatever uh-huh. the original problem was, maybe even 10 scenes ago. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes sometimes you find yourself doing that. Susan, you were going to say something. Yeah, it wasn't important. I gave up uh, writing fiction after a couple of my characters fell in love and they weren't supposed to. Oh, that's hard. <laughs> <laughs> and then technology kind of caught up with my concept and I had to abandon the whole thing. But oh. yeah, science fiction script. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see. So if people wanted to become involved in the StoryForge productions, um, the StoryForge community, how would they do that? Well, we are pretty active on social media, mm-hmm. so you can get in touch with us. We are StoryForge Productions on Facebook and then at StoryForgers on both Twitter and Instagram. So you can chat with us there. You can find other people who like to be, who are part of StoryForge there. Um, and then we also have a website. It's www.storyforgeproductions.com. And there we've got a bunch of projects. Uh, the articles will be coming up shortly. I actually just recently started rebuilding that site. So all of our necessary information is up there, but I'm still slowly adding in all of the projects that we should have live. So the articles are down at the moment, but they should be up uh, before too much longer. I want to sit down with the House on Writers block. <laughs> That's a good oh. name for a block. Isn't it great? Yeah, that's a webcomic that Rachel, my co-founder, wrote. Mm-hmm. Uh, she collaborates with an artist named Allison O, oh, and the two of them tell this hilarious story where in which a, four- a girl gets stuck, uh, sucked into a book that she wrote when she was 14 years old and has to deal with all of the ramifications of her terrible writing. Oh, dear. <laughs> my gosh. That does sound like fun. That sounds ghastly. I have to read it's- it. <laughs> it's hilarious. They're actually on their final chapter of the webcomic now. I can't believe it's almost over. Oh, dear. That's And that's a, a classic example of uh, of the kind of creativity that, you, that you're trying to foster. I am absolutely enamored of the idea of promoting creativity within the community. Uh, and it's, it's something that we try to do here at Krypton Radio as well, which in fact is one of the reasons you're on the show with us this evening. Because we're all boosting each other. Yeah. And, and exactly. we want to help. Well, we succeed together, right? Yeah. That's right. We all rise together. It's a no-lose scenario. Exactly. You have been listening to The Event Horizon on Krypton Radio with your hosts, Gene Turnbow and Susan Fox. And our guest this evening has been Karen Keene of StoryForge Productions. Thank you for spending the time with us, Karen. Absolutely. Again, thank you so much for having me. I've had a great time with you. You have been listening to episode 169 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon, broadcast on May 20th, 2017, with your hosts Gene Turnbow and Susan Fox. 
Our guest this evening has been the remarkable Ms. Karen Keene, founder of StoryForge. For more information, please visit StoryForgeProductions.com. If you liked this week's episode and you would like to hear more of them, please visit Patreon.com slash CryptonRadio and chip in. There is no national public radio fund coming to our rescue each month. That comes from you, the listeners, directly. We do also support advertising and gladly accept sponsorships. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The navigator was Christine Cherry. The science officer was science fiction illustrator Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was Christian V. McGuire, and the captain was voiced by none other than the legendary science fiction writer Larry Niven. This program and its contents, except those parts obviously owned by others, are copyright 2017 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon, it's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.